Hello and welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And and PJ, I, I apologise in advance, this might be audio poison, but there's something I need to do on air. Uh-oh. Bear with me. Ah. Oh, you... What's in that can, John? Mmm. I'm, I'm cracking a, a an IPA. Uh, oh, a very refreshing India pale ale. You mother. Mm. Because, um, is this our first evening recording session ever? No, we've done one before and you were drinking in that too, but I couldn't because I had work next day. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't even remember which episode it was, but apparently if we do an evening record, John has to get a buzz on. Oh, I'm so sorry, PJ. It's it's horrible when your own own actions come back to damn you. I was like, oh, no, I've never drunk on air before. I'll be very professional. But no, apparently I have a problem. I mean, if it helps, you were drinking a spirit the last time, not a nail. Oh, thank you. Completely different. Mm. The way I justify it to myself is I'm allowed to do one of every type of alcohol. So I've had um, brown liquor. Now I'm on beer. And uh, so I've still got kind of clear... You know, clear spirits. I've got um, cider, wine. You know, the, the possibilities are endless, really. You've got three different colours of wine. Oh, in- indeed, indeed. And, uh, you know, moonshine, anything. <laughs> uh, my own home attempts at brewing, which I, I swear is some, you know, com- completely unique form of matter I, I managed to create. Um, but no, PJ, I, I, it wasn't meant to be celebratory, other than the fact that I'm... I've had a nice weekend off, which has been lovely, but uh, it does feel a bit like a celebration because we've 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 arrived at the end of um, one million. I know it's it's so bizarre how long this has taken us. Simply, you know, it is it's it's the longest diversion we've had just by nature of the way we decided to look at it, and I I feel a weird mix of elation and relief, um, and in a way sadness because. I'm going to miss being able to properly criticise things and not go, well, that was great. I I do feel a little bit of sadness because I, I was looking at our spreadsheet and I kind of realised that this was the last big kind of stone we had to pass, basically. Mm. And, and, and I don't want to say it's like downhill to the end now, but I think things are going to feel like they're moving a lot quicker now because, yeah, we've basically got, Justice for All, and then World War Three, and that's it. Like it feels like we're the, the beginning of the end in a way. Yeah, we're barreling towards the finish now. Luckily, these two volumes are strong. Justice mm. for All and World War Three are both amazing books, and I'm very excited to start looking at them. Do you know what's weird? We started um, our first episode of DC One Million was um, came out on the second of August. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, we've done That's a weird, bit of it? summer, all of autumn, and some winter. And admittedly, we missed an episode. We in did the mix there, which is, which is on us. We apologise. Um, but but yeah, it, it feels like a significant portion of 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 our, of our lives really has has been devoted to this. Much longer than I think anybody on the planet 
has ever devoted to DC. <laughs> it has gone from, well, it's, it's summer to Christmas. We're recording on December 1st. My wife's gone out for her uh, her team meal with her work colleagues, which leaves me in the house on my own. So, and this is what this is what you get up to. When hey, you're hey, on your own. I mean, you say that, but the, I'm recording this sat on my sofa in the living room, as opposed to in to, in my tiny drafty office. So, oh wow, wow, luxury you know, upgrade. Oh, there's somebody at my door. I will be back. Is it? Is this happening? Is this actually happening? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll, I'll fill I'll fill the air for a, for a minute or two. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm glad we could finally get rid of PJ. Um, he's really been holding us back. Um, I'd like to uh, take things down a notch now. Maybe if you're uh, relaxing at home or operating heavy machinery, you could uh, you could grab yourself a beer and, uh, you know, just uh, let yourself have a moment. I think you've earned it. Mm. Ah. So in other news, I've been watching um, The Beatles Get Back on Disney Plus, which has just come out. And, uh, oh wait, I can hear some rustling. Is he back? I think something's happening. He it was a Hermes back. driver. It was a Hermes driver. Oh, hello, PJ's back, everybody. Hi. Yeah, he. Uh, they work late, apparently. Oh, cool. I mean, I'm not cutting this. I, I'm, just, I'm just that lazy at the moment. This is all staying in. Now I've just got to pick up my recording device, which fell on the floor, in my zeal to go. <laughs> oh, there we go. All good. Oh, I'm still recording. I wasn't sure if I would be. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope, I hope you're still recording, even if... Um, well, we'll have to see what the audio actually comes out like. I assume there's going to be an almighty thump while it, langs, while it landed on the carpet. Hardwood floor, John. Hardwood floor. Okay, I would, I, I, I'm telling myself that we can carry on without having to cut that, but uh, we shall see. <laughs> I, I like the authenticity of it. it yeah, we're, uh, it's very lived in, our podcast. Um, but PJ, um, aside from, you know, um, uh, each us all celebrating our own little way, you having the lounge back and me me enjoying a, a small can of IPA. I'm also uh, wearing my Batband pyjamas for maximum comfort. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to... I was going to make some kind of joke about you maybe kind of sitting in your underwear and recording, but um, I was going to ask, what have you been... How have you been... How have you been relaxing? How have you been entertaining yourself? It feels like a while since we we've actually last spoken yeah um i have been playing very old school computer games on uh, i just got the the new evercade versus console which is the uh not desktop what's the word for a console that's not a handheld that thing you know big console uh, version of the okay, handheld uh, like a like a, a tv thing like yeah, a, a, yeah yeah connect okay. to the tv um which plays the same Evercade cartridges as the Evercade handheld console. And if, if you're not familiar, these are basically each cartridge is filled with games from certain, like you've got an Atari cartridge, which has like 30 games on it or something stupid like that. But we're talking 70s, 80s Atari games here. And um, yeah, I've been loving it. I've got loads of games for it and it's it's a lot of fun. Cool. Cool. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, In fact, I think the only... um. The only reason I'm aware of the Evercade is because you very kindly posted me a copy of Retro Gamer. Was it monthly, quarterly, or just called Retro it, it, Gamer? It's just called Retro Gamer. Uh, yeah, because um, there was uh, an ad for uh, Spectacular Sparky in it, 
uh, which I have uh, cut out and uh, <laughs> is now is, is up on my whiteboard at the moment. Actually, I need to work Amazing. out how to frame it. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, which is a very kind gesture of you. So thank you. You're welcome. It was in this month's as well, but I'm not sending that to you too. That's... No, no. I think I think it's probably a limit to your kindness. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been watching, or I've started watching, um, beat the Beatles thing. The Beatles. Oh, get back I really want to watch that. I need to find the time for that. I well, you definitely need to find the time because it's nearly as long as DC One Million. I think uh, <laughs> it's oh, gosh, maybe like nine hours in total, or something like that, or. Seven. It's something. It's something ridiculous. Like each episode is the is the better part of three hours, mm. and there's three of them. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, it, it, it. 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 It's scratching the same itch that doing a very in-depth issue by issue podcast of my favorite run on a superhero book does. I mean, uh, it is um, nerdy to the extreme in a way <laughs> I, and, and it's kind of it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating i'm i'm aware that it is like the most the niche the of niche things like here is just tons of footage of these people kind of just hanging out uh and i love it i absolutely love it it is it's kind of magical so are you a, are you a Beatles fan or are you just looking at this as a casual observer or no i i am a Beatles i am a Beatles um fan i i would not i would not say i'm uh an obsessive fan um i think i was probably that when i was younger um and i still very much love the beatles but i probably don't listen to them as much as i used to probably be purely just through familiarity i think i've you know listened to them a bit too much i think i think that's probably one of the appeals of this documentary actually it's um it's hard to find new Beatles content, you know. Mm. And um and I, I to be honest, with you, I, I one thing I genuinely find fascinating, and I'm gonna this is me attempting to segue it back into comics. <laughs> um I love team dynamics. Yeah. I, I love how a team of superheroes, if you will, interact and play off each other and how their individual personalities can inform the the, the group's personality as a whole. And that's why, obviously, we love the JLA. It's why we love the Avengers. Um, and I'm fascinated by the creative process. I'm fascinated by those rare moments in history where a bunch of people come together to do a thing and no one could have planned it and it was never intended to be that way. But for whatever reason, a group of people at the right moment in time, the right place... They just vibe off each other and they make something kind of amazing. And yeah, I know this is a bit tenuous, but I, that's how I'm tying it into comics because there have been some amazing creative teams over the years. And, you know, moments where, well, I would say Morrison and Quietly, where together they are the dream team. And, you know, I think there are times where they've each worked with other people and it maybe hasn't been quite that same magic. And um, yeah. Yeah, I'm just I'm fascinated by it, and I'm I'm fascinated by this brief window in time of the Beatles, and knowing that I'm looking at footage of them, and they are all younger than I am now. Oh, don't um, say it like that. <laughs> well, yeah, and I I think probably comparing yourself to the Beatles is not a healthy metric, but like, <laughs> you know, what I mean, I'm looking at these people, and they're kind of like in their late twenties, and 
it was just this bizarre moment where really they were only insanely famous for six years, maybe. And I don't know. I, I just I, I find it fascinating in a way that they could never have known at that moment in time that maybe their best was behind them. You know, that they like they needed each other to be the Beatles, to be great, to kind of iron out each other's flaws. But at the same time, they they were drifting apart. Like they 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 you know they all wanted different things, and that magic just couldn't last forever. And yeah, so I that's what I find fascinating about it. It's kind of like sad and wonderful, and yeah, maybe I'll be pretentious. Maybe it's a, a metaphor for for life itself. You know, these great things don't last forever. And uh, yeah, I just I, I find it very profound. I, I'm very much enjoying it. And uh, maybe that's for beer talking, I don't know. But um, I think about that sort of thing a lot. I think about the creative process. I think about people coming together to make a thing and and then moving on. And, you know, like how many series are there where you kind of wish it had lasted forever? Or maybe it's better that it did end and then didn't end up and then didn't ultimately disappoint you when it faded from glory. I don't know. This is what happens when I've had like a quarter of a can of of a very nice IPA. I think I think you're right though. I think you you you've said something very profound here because you get these things that you love be they a, a series of of comics or books or TV show or films with a creative team working at the peak of their powers and either it finishes at the point where you still wish there was more or it goes on too long. I, I you know no matter how satisfying an ending if it's been consistently good, you're always going to say, I, I wish I had more of that. And even certain things where people have tried to return to the well years later, revisit it, even if you enjoy it, it's never the same. And yeah, I think art is, it's, it's ephemeral. It's, 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 you can't in- experience something for the first time again. Every time is going to be different. And you also can't make the same thing again. So it's it's bizarre and odd and quirky and we love it and hate it all at the same time. I mean, it's funny on that note because you, you've mentioned in, in, in previous uh, kind of episodes that, you know, you've you found that kind of some of Morrison's later takes on a character, say like Batman, for example... Mm. Yeah, you've maybe not felt that like the Batman of Morrison's run on the solo character's title was the same Batman that we were seeing in the pages of JLA because Morrison's take on the character had changed, uh, you know, or, or like maybe Final Crisis where we do see a version of the League under Morrison's pen and it doesn't quite feel the same again because Morrison's a different person to where to who they were back then you know because we're all different people and yeah i don't know i mean maybe um i'm i'm looking too hard to time the beatles analogy into this but yeah <laughs> it's it's kind of maybe this jla series is very good and maybe maybe it would be good in a vacuum or maybe it was good because of the time it came out you know and maybe the world needed it and you know be very hard to do that again because 1998 is not going to come around again or 97 i should check my spreadsheet when did it come out 
97, January 97, I should know that. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> no, it's but it, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Even two, three years after Morrison finished on JLA and they did their three-part story in JLA Declassified with Ed McGuinness, it still wasn't, you know, I enjoyed that, but it wasn't the same. Oh, heck, that's another one we're going to have to pick up, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes it is. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, folks, when, when we finish World War Three. It won't be over because we're going to have to be um, we're going to be crawling through the wreckage for a while, kind of picking up uh, the weird little bits of ephemera, uh, and and then we'll probably have to have a bigger discussion about where we go from there because we floated a lot of ideas over 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 the run so far. Um, come to think of it, we should probably do think about something for episode fifty. What episode's this? Uh, this is episode. I can tell you now. This is episode forty-five. Oh, it's ages away. We've got plenty of time. It's fine. It'll be another year by then. <laughs> but PJ, but PJ, on the topic of weird weird ephemera to pick up, weird Morrison-related Justice League-associated content, uh, we should mention uh, a very cool uh, piece of... Well, something from The Vault, which was brought to our attention by Chris for Monica Murphy. Hmm. Uh, thank you, Chris. Once again, genuinely, because um, I honestly don't know how you fit all this in your head. It's quite incredible. Um, uh, Chris has brought to our attention the very, very first <laughs> GMOS uh, JLA story, which was which appeared in Secret Files number forty six from December nineteen eighty nine, which is absolutely wild. Like, we're, we're talking uh, nearly uh, a decade before the launch of JLA, and there was a previous Morrison story. Yeah, I had no idea this existed. Not a clue. And uh, I'm quite glad it does, in a weird way. It's weird to me. It it definitely, because, uh, you know, I've read it now, thanks to kind of Chris bringing it to our attention. And we should say very quickly now that uh, we are actually going to do an episode on it. We'd like so. Thank you, Chris. We'd like to uh, give it the attention it deserves. So that'll be something we'll pick up once we finish the main run. Um, but yeah, it is so bizarre because it's like it's like Morrison, but it's not Morrison. If you know what I mean, it's like I, I it's for say it's for characters, it's for it's for voice. But yeah, it's so it's surreal. It's like it's come from a parallel universe. See, I I didn't actually read the story yet. Because I want, I thought if we're going to do an episode on it, I'm going to come to this fresh, so that that'll be the first time I've read it. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting to it. I think sort of a proto Morrison JLA story is something that could be very very interesting. Mm. Well, well, Alex of a list, and we should say that Chris has been on fire because he has provided us with another piece of um, lost Superman. JLA uh, Morrison history in uh, in the form of a little something called Superman 2000. Now, PJ, you've been caught on the back foot here because I did pass this on to you this morning, but it went into your junk uh, your junk folder. It did, yeah. Because uh, I've I, got a big punch marked as spam. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I think I've, I'm finally seeing in the harsh light of day um, how you view our relationship. So, thank you for that. <laughs> Um, but no, this is this is genuinely quite fascinating to me. This is uh, an unsuccessful 
for reasons. Pitch by Grant Morrison, Mark Wade, Mark Miller, and Tom Payer to not necessarily reboot, but to take Superman in a new direction. And this was submitted in October 1998. So around the same time, frankly, around the same time as DC One Million, um, these four creators came together and they were like, hey, DC, we think Superman needs a breath of fresh air because if we don't force it now, it's going to be very necessary soon. And here's where we want to take the character. And it was a 21-page document about how to revitalize Superman for the new millennium. Ooh. And they make the point that um, Superman needs revitalizing kind of like every 15 years. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because they make the point that... So this is like 98. So they they say that the previous big kind of revitalization of the character would have been John Byrne's run in the 80s. Would that, would that line up with your knowledge, PJ? Yeah, so uh, 86, the post-crisis continuity and, and John Byrne rebooting it with uh, the Man of Steel series. And prior to that, so I guess kind of like the early 70s and this is where my knowledge really falls apart so I apologise everyone um, they mentioned Julie Schwartz and Denny O'Neill yeah so this would be around the same time as I want to say I think similar sort of time to Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams on Batman where they sort of revitalised Batman a bit at the same time and both titles became a little bit more I don't want to use the word gritty because that's not quite right, but maybe a little bit more grounded and grown up, sort mm. of evolved from the the sort of camper sixties output. Yeah, because um, when do we generally say that the Silver Age ended? It's earlier than you think, isn't I it? Believe that the. General consensus is that the Silver Age ends in around 1980, and then the modern age runs from 1980 to now, inexplicably. Because hmm. if you go back to the, uh, I guess, kind of classic Superman, we're talking like the 30s, kind of. Like, so I guess kind of like the Golden Age. He's very much just the. Well, he was kind of inventing the superhero archetype, as a lot of characters were at the time, but. Yeah, he is he is strong, he's fast, he he's kind of, you know, scangs up for truth, justice in the American way, and he's kind of kind of spending a lot of his time punching unscrupulous business owners, that sort of thing. Uh the real kind of villains of society at the time. I think one, and then, one of the very first Superman stories, he 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 takes down a wife beater. <laughs> yeah, it's he was well, he was he was a he was a justice warrior basically he was going out and in that kind of 1930s way kind of slapping justice into people <laughs> um and then of course like i guess the next big shift for superman is the weird fluidity of like the 50s and 60s sort of thing like um you know every every um issue cover was very gimmicky like uh, help jimmy i've been turned into a hammer or something like that. Or... Yeah, yeah. It's an era where they're sort of throwing everything at him to really see what 
what sticks, I think. So he's developing new powers every other issue. You've got the radio serial, the newspaper strips, and things like things like that coming into being as well, which then feed into the comics. Uh, the anim- the first animated series, of course, the Fleischer Brothers classic, but slightly racist cartoon. Um, yes, yeah, so there's all this stuff sort of which piles onto Superman and 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 is you know it's an anything goes kind of era. I think. Have you um, read? Um, multiversity. No. Okay, I'm going to embarrass myself now. It's a bit of a mixed bag, multiversity. There's a lot of good in it. Um, the There is an issue, and everyone, I'm so sorry, I'm struggling to remember it now. There is an issue featuring an entirely unique character that Morrison and Doug Mank created for multiversity. And it's driving me mad because I can't remember the name of it. But the gimmick, it's a very Morrison idea, is that the comic itself is alive. So you are reading a comic about a superhero, completely new superhero. But he himself is a comic. He knows he's a comic. And they make a point of saying that you are holding his physical body, which is made of paper and staples and ink. And... By reading the comic, you allow the superhero to become alive. Yeah, that is very Morrison. It's very Morrison. It's a very, very, very... It's a fun idea. And um, because Morrison has these big kind of grand th- theories about the kind of evolution of superheroes and how they the different eras have been shaped, there's a, there's a brief montage at the start where this character is literally being born out of, like, ink. So, like, um, the CMYK ink colours are, like, pooling into a vat and this this, this superhuman being is coming out of it. And um, they have to load a backstory into him because they're literally, literally sculpting a narrative around him. And so they briefly cycle through the four eras of comics as Morrison kind of, like, believes in them. Oh, okay. And so they do the Golden Age and it's very much, like, you know that that kind of like help um my hangs have become palm trees or something like that like just weird weird stupid stuff and oh wait no am i okay yeah so they do that they 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 cut to like i i'm probably getting this garbled but they cut to like the silver age and it's it's that classic crisis on infinite earths kind of shot of superman holding supergirl in his arms but it's not that uh, and then the, they cut to, like, the gritty 80s, kind of 90s kind of yep. things. So he's just punching the crap out of someone in an alleyway and there's blood everywhere and it's really violent. And then um, and then Morrison defines the current age, I guess, in their kind of worldview as the modern inclusive age. So it's like golden, silver, dark 80s, I guess, and then modern inclusive. Okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I don't know if that's kind of self, uh, self fulfilling. I don't know, but that I and and they do they do a lot of similar things with um, uh, Flex Mentolo. Hmm. If you have you have you read the Flex Mentolo miniseries? I have not. It's actually a rare situation where I'm you. You're you're normally the very well read one, but uh, Flex Mentolo. Is was introduced in Doom Patrol 
uh, as the strong man of the beach. It's probably best not to think about it too much, but he's based on the old kind of adverts that would come in the back of like 1950s comics. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know the ones. Yes, the Charles Atlas sort of thing. And he's basically, he, he studied the forbidden arts of muscle mystery and he became so hench that he could flex and alter reality. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very Morrison. And he popped up in the pages of, of Doom Patrol and then ultimately, uh, Morrison did a completely unrelated kind of non-canon uh, miniseries about Flex Mentolo, which is kind of about a rock star who has taken an overdose of obviously pills and is dying on the phone to the Samaritans. So he's talking to somebody as he's dying. And as he's dying, he's hallucinating wildly and he talks about his childhood of growing up in in kind of Glasgow and being terrified of the atomic bomb uh, and then how superheroes were going to save us all from the bomb. And at the same time, Flex Mentolo, who is his childhood superhero that he would draw in kind of sketchbooks, is on an investigation to find out what happened to his former teammate, Uh uh, so and it's completely just uh, reality bending and past, present, and fiction and reality are all kind of overlapping at once as this character is dying, and it's very it's a very autobiographical piece from Morrison. If you've read Morrison's uh, um, well actual autobiography, uh, you know very much talks about um, the fear of the atomic bomb in the sixties and how terrified they were of it as a child. And how the idea of Superman was meant to save us all from the bomb because Superman was invincible and Superman, you know, could do anything. And um, yeah, so it's a very, very kind of autobiographical piece. But the fun, one of the fun things about it is, is that over the course of the three-part miniseries, Flex Mentolo goes on a journey through all the eras of superheroes. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it starts out, he's a very cheesy, he's a cheesy Superman-like character. And then, you know, in the second issue, he literally ends up in, like, a, a superhero orgy. Like, um, Oh, dear. It, yeah, it's, it's everything. It's like a gritty nightclub where everyone's just violent and killing each other. And all the superheroes are having sex. And it's just, like, this big, big fetish pit and everything. And um, it's literally, like a character going through 80 years of what comics have been, what superhero comics have been. It's really good. I I, it's, it's, I want to reread it now, actually. Now I've kind of talked about it for far too long. I think I'd quite like to read it for the first time. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, PJ. I'm completely rambling here. But yeah, clearly Morrison has many feelings on the evolving eras of, of superheroes. What are we talking about? Uh, the Superman 2000 pitch. <laughs> I swear this is a very small can of beer. Um <laughs> Anyway, so the very interesting thing is that um, these four creators came together and they were like, hey, hey, DC editorial, we have an idea about where we should take Superman. And the wild thing is, is that they were given the green light. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Yeah. They, it was signed off by Eddie Berganza, the editor, hmm. who at the time was relatively new to DC. And I, I, I recognize the name. But uh, I'm not massively familiar with books that uh, Baganza may have been involved with. 
But it would seem that despite the fact it got the green light and despite the fact they had kind of set the date for when the series would start, DC editor Mike Carlin was on holiday. And when he returned from holiday to discover that all these conversations were being had about Superman without his knowledge, he instantly vetoed the project. Oh. And just kind of killed it. Because apparently, this is wild to me, DC adopted a policy from that point of prohibiting big-name creators from working on Superman or Batman. Wait, what? Yes, apparently. But that doesn't make any sense. How does that fit with the timeline? So that would have been... They would have been pitching that late 90s, you said. 98. This is kind of like October 1998. Okay, because I think it was in early... No, uh, mid-2000, mid to late 2000, perhaps, when the Superman books got um, soft rebooted. So when they kicked off all the original creative team and brought on all new teams. But the new teams, as far as I remember, were quite big names. I think you ha- you had um, Jeff Loeb was one of them and Ed McGuinness, although that might have been when Ed McGuinness became a big name. But That's like- what I'm wondering, because I'm looking up um, some of the stuff... Uh, yeah, I'm looking up that team now, but they were the team that was brought in, basically, a kind of as a reaction to, um, kind of as a, as a reaction to this being shut down. They needed another team, and so they mm. went with Jeff Loeb. And, um, God, God, memory like a sieve. Sorry, we just said his name. Ed McGuinness. Ed McGuinness. There we go. So yeah, um, it, was it was it possible that Jeff Loeb wasn't a big name at the time? This is no. This was after Long Halloween. Yeah. So this was this was before the decline of Jeff Loeb. Yes, I've read Ultimates Three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we got the fun thing about this. Um, the fun thing about what um, uh, uh, Chris has shared with us, and this actually goes to um, uh, a really cool and retro website here. <laughs> it, it's really kind of Web One Point uh, which is called theages.superman.nu which is uh, kind of like a history of, of Superman, um, you get some great kind of Morrison quotes. Uh, and Morrison here is talking about the infamous meeting with a man dressed as Superman at San Diego Comic-Con. Ah, uh, yes, I remember us talking about that, yeah. Yeah, and so, and so we have a photo of um, uh, a young Grant Morrison posing with... Um, Superman, the cosplayer, plus a Superboy and a Supergirl. Hmm. It might have been an actual Super Family, and um, he talks Wait, about proper, how proper nineties Superboy. Oh, oh, oh! Su- yes, amazing. yes, PJ, amazing, yeah. with the jacket and everything. And it's the same story that Morrison has has now told many times. You know, in referring to, um, you know, in referring to All Star Superman, uh, it pops up again in Morrison's autobiography. And, you know, from Morrison being a kind of chaos magician, this was like a, a shamanic moment. You know, they were channeling Superman. And so you can imagine um, Morrison and maybe like a slightly bewildered Mark Wade coming across this Superman. And, um, and Grant Morrison saying, can I interview you, Superman? I would like to ask you some questions. And then just talking to this guy for half an hour in character as Superman. 
And then apparently running back to the hotel room and just writing, like, uh, filling a notebook with ideas for Superman. That is genuinely amazing. I love that story so much. Can you, PJ, my, the gap in my knowledge here is Tom Payer. Do you now? I know the name. I know I've read stuff that that he's done, but at the moment I cannot bring to mind specifically what any of it is. Um, I'll go to the old Google machine see if I can figure that out. I, I think the moment you bring it up, it's gonna kind of. I'm gonna. I'm gonna kick myself. No Google, not Tom Peters. Well, while you're looking that up, um, we do have a cool quote from Morrison here. Um, so we had the 21st century Superman. We had four guys who'd been waiting all their lives to do this. We wanted to launch in January 2000, and we'd have sold a million copies. It would have been the coolest, biggest thing to happen to Kal-El since the Burn revamp, and DC blew it. I have nothing but respect for Joe Kelly and Jeff Loeb and the other guys currently on the books, but they haven't been allowed to go far enough, and as a result, the current revamp seems a little muted. Not being able to do Superman and not being offered anything else at DC was the main reason I decided to do Marvel Boy for Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Casada at Marvel. Oh, yeah, that, wow. I didn't realise that's why Marvel Boy came around. Well, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Because you start to put the timeline together because you've got JLA, which ran from 97 to 99. Uh, no, sorry, a very, very, very early 2000, I want to say. Uh, you have, then Morrison does um, does Marvel Boy for Marvel, then, which is only a miniseries, and then it's on to New X-Men, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. So this is the road not travelled. Like, if DC had actually kind of greenlit this project, we might never have gotten new X-Men. And maybe to some extent, we would never have gotten the X-Men movies. That's crazy to think about. And we may never have got the Marvel movies. Wow. That's insane. Anyway, Tom Payer. So, uh, writer and editor, um, he was the writer on the Hourman book that spun out of DC One Million, uh, featuring the One Million version of Hourman. He's all, he's written everything basically: <laughs> Superman, Batman, Flash. Um, does, did the JLA eighty page eighty page Giants? Some stories in those. Did Legion of Superheroes, Teen Titans, Superboy, and Supergirl for Marvel. He's done Spider Man. Uh, he did Marvel Apes. There's a <laughs> ringing endorsement. Uh, Punisher. He was involved in House of M. He's done some Simpsons comics as well. Uh, and it turns out he was also editor on Animal Man in 1988. Oh, right. And in, on Doom Patrol in 1987. Right. Also edited Hellblazer and Sandman. So And Shade the Changing Man. Okay. Wow. Okay. Right. It is starting to... I swear I recognise the name, and it, it might have been from Doom Patrol, which I think, I'm a big fan of. I'm, I'm sure it's just going to be one of those creators we've both come across loads of times and just not really thought about that much. It's kind of I, I kind of feel sorry for him a bit, because among that lineup of four big names, like, you know, kind of Wade, Morrison and Miller, are all quite acclaimed, you know, for, you know, they're those kind of standout creators. And, and yet it would seem that Tom Payer has been absolutely prolific in the field. We've probably all 
been we've probably all experienced some of his work and yet he's maybe not uh, as household a name in the yeah. same way yeah looks like it well look i will i won't go into too much more detail from the superman 2000 thing because i haven't read the full proposal that's on a separate tab uh in this glorious website where i completely missed that tab and it's but god bless early web design because it, it is i'm so nostalgic for it um and pj you haven't had the chance to dive into it fully but I will end by saying that even though the proposal was scrapped, certain elements of it have turned up in other books. So ah. Birthright Birthright by Mark Wade, which I you've read, haven't you, PJ? The Superman Yes, but it's been a long time and I don't have much in the way of memory of it. Well, apparently uh, Wade introduced the idea in that book, although quite whether or not that's considered fully canon or not, I don't know, of um, Clark being a vegetarian. Yes, yeah, that does ring a bell. Because if Superman is has a code against killing and is this kind of like enlightened being, the, uh, the logic being, would he be comfortable eating meat? And they all wagered that no, he wouldn't be. Uh, they also had. They were also going to say that um, because Superman was invulnerable and had this incredible kind of brain power, which is often kind of downplayed, he would have an immense sense of curiosity, an immense sense of creativity, and so they proposed that the Fortress of of Solitude would be um, just full of all his various hobbies, like of all the skills he's trying to master. And, I like that idea, and you see bits of that in All Star Superman. And you apparently also see little bits of it in Reg Sun by Mark Miller. Yes, yes, you do. I remember that. Yeah. And one other thing, which we've talked about before, but the infamous cover, well, not infamous, the famous cover of All-Star Superman Volume 1 is Superman relaxing on a cloud, kind of looking over his shoulder at us in a very you know, kind of calm and chilled way. And that is a direct reference to that cosplayer. And how he was sitting on a bollard when they saw him. And the final, most controversial thing, PJ, is that they were going to do away with the red underwear. Oh, no, can't do that. Can't <laughs> do that. I mean, we saw what happened when they did. They're back now because, you know, nobody liked it. They were they they were adamant that they were go they were finally gonna get rid of the red trunks. No. Don't agree. You're right, though, because that was a big part of the New 52, and it didn't last. No, they even killed that Superman off. <laughs> oh, did they actually kill him? I think so. I'm pretty sure that basically they killed him off and replaced him with a pre-Flashpoint Superman. Yes, who had been living on the moon all the time. Something like that, yeah. Indeed. I've got those comics, but I haven't actually got around to reading them yet. I, re I read... I didn't read the George Perez... Superman stuff, but I did read the uh, a good chunk of the Morrison prequel. It was all right. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it pushed it far enough in terms of being like a a different take on the character. Yeah, you know, it, it, to the point where you are kind of like, well, if we're gonna do the new Fifty Two, what's the gimmick? You know, if if we're ultimately just kind of telling the same stories with the character, like, yeah. Why did we reboot? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. But why did they reboot? Hmm. These are all great questions. Um, PJ, I'm so sorry. I feel like I've absolutely monopolised the conversation for the last kind of 40 minutes or so. Um, 
Should we get to the episode? I mean, it's been fascinating stuff, so I am more than happy with it. But yeah, let's uh, let's dive into DC One Million Issue Four. So, PJ, um, the end of an era. What are we? What's actually happening here? Because we're back on the main book, aren't we? Such as it, such as it was the main miniseries. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, lots to answer your question in one word. We've had uh, Vandal Savage and Solaris plotting in the far-flung future to kill Superman, the original Prime Superman, who's been living in the sun for thousands of years and is about to return. The JLA of the 1990s have been uh, taken to the future to help celebrate this. They've taken part in some games and things we haven't seen uh, because they weren't printed in this book. And then things have gone wrong, stuff about bizarro plagues. I don't really know much about uh there was also resurrection man got involved he fought vandal savage but then savage killed in air quotes him i think basically forcing him to die over and over again very quickly on the surface of mars while savage takes away what uh the night fragment a lump of kryptonite to help solaris kill superman a lot of confusing stuff that now i'm trying to say it out loud i'm like wait what's happened (laughs) Well, um, you were ultimately right, PJ, in in your wild guess that it was kryptonite. I, I don't know where that notion came to me, but you know, just some of us are just uh, just smarter about these things. Some people just have an an inherent understanding of plot. Yes, and you know, you you absolutely smashed it. Um, but yeah, so but I guess like after what feels like a few diversions because we've been off in the far future, uh. We're right back where we left our heroes, really, which is, yeah, the the they're trying to, well, it's kind of weird in a way because they they've saved the present day, but now there's a ticking clock to kind of save the future. Yeah, they've basically saved the present day by creating Solaris and through Starman, who betrayed the League, realizing, oh, I'm a bad guy, and sacrificing himself to save everyone. And then Huntress said, hey, I've got a plan for the future. And I, this just seems to be the next moment from that, even though we've had two or three issues we've covered in between. Yeah, and of course, this was all coming out in very close kind of, you know, proximity to one another, like in terms of, like, publishing schedule. So... Yeah, in many ways, this this almost was all happening simultaneously. Yeah, like these, all these books, every issue of One Million came out within the same month. Uh, wow. It's taken us a lot longer to cover them, but yeah, for people reading it live, as it were, it was just one month of story. It's insane. <laughs> like maybe maybe it was a a very meta decision to try and mimic uh four-dimensional combat <laughs> in how you're meant to approach this series but uh i mean this is it now i mean this is really where it all comes together and uh you know quite whether you've experienced every kind of individual issue or like us you've had this kind of curated experience um it's yeah it's got it's got to end somewhere so here we are yeah with superman of the far future punching through time which is crazy and brilliant yes i I mean right off the bat let's start on a high um and uh we 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 learned that as a character attempts to punch through the time barrier um it causes ripples in time which i i love um i think this has popped up in a lot of morrison's work the idea that um 
time is a direction. And so uh, the first shock wave uh, kind of causes uh, some slight disturbances uh, in the late summer of the year 4070. And a young woman named Vida Knight spills her lunch, misses her pod connection and becomes Doc Midnight 30 seconds later than she should have. But she still saves the universe in 4078, so that's fine. Yeah. I makes me think but in infinite crisis when golden age superman is punching down the walls of reality if that was jeff johns riffing on this i was wondering if you'd bring that up i mean it would have to be sure yeah like it, it doesn't be. exist in a vacuum i mean i have been fairly critical of elements of dc one million but this moment superman punching through time i love that it's for me that is pure iconic superman even if it is a different superman well, I mean, right off the bat, like my heart is soaring because we're we're back with these characters. Yeah, you know, and and I think as Skeel said, like it's not our Superman, but there's an S somewhere on his chest, so he's our, he, he's a Superman and he's doing Supermany things. Um, but yeah, um, and the rest of the Justice League and the Justice Legion are basically, you know, the the entire Watchtower is shaking because of what Superman 1 million is trying to do. And, um, yeah, uh, it, it's killing him, basically. Like, uh, we we learned that um, his powers only last as long as he has super sunlight in his, in his, in his body. And um, he's actively aging as, as he punches through the time barrier. Yeah, every blow is draining energy from his cells and aging him. So with every punch, he gets a bit older. But every punch is also taking him further forward in time we get like a count up so the year 5340 the year 60,001 the year 77,770 and also we have uh, Zariel saying um, did anyone feel that we just lost four minutes on the clock time's getting badly bruised around here yep yep that's Morrison having fun that is Morrison having fun um, but I guess as we turn the page, PJ, um, wowzer, like some, something's happening here. Yeah, this is glorious. This We get a splash page, and it's Solaris battling an army of superhumans. But what's great is we don't know who any of these characters are. We haven't spent time with any of them. So, you know, they can just be killed. <laughs> and so you really get the the weight of what's happening here because superheroes are, are dying battling Solaris. And it is a good way of selling the power of Solaris. We're finally seeing Solaris in action properly. Yeah, and it kind of looks terrifying. Like, you know, with with full credit to, you know, Val Cimex and, and the arts and the arc team, because there's a lot going on here and, and um yeah, it just vape Solaris is just vaporizing kind of wave after wave of, of, of superheroes and some kind of vaguely recognizable or as archetypes in a way, but yeah, the big takeaway is there's, there's a ton of them and they're they're all dying, like in, in their hundreds. Yeah, and here we get the the title and credits as well. And you gotta love the title, Death Star, which <laughs> brilliant, yes. Uh, and then the credits, Grant Morrison writer, Val Semix, penciler, Prentice Rollins, inker, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, Heroic Age separator, Tony Bedard, associate editor, and Dan Raspler, tyrant son. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Dan. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and uh, Solaris, um, who we last saw um, being a little bitch, <laughs> who we last saw getting called out like a playground bully by Superman wagging his finger at him, uh, is now just being a terrifying engine of destruction. And actually, he says as much. I'm Solaris, perfect engine of stellar annihilation. My strategies have been calculated across centuries. I have come to destroy the sun and end the Superman dynasty. I am perfect in my hatred. I am unstoppable in my perfection. And we see waves of energy just kind of scouring the land. Yeah, and in the first panel you get him blasting uh, characters reminiscent of the Ray and what looks to be an OMAC, but with the S on its chest and Superman's colours. I think that might be the Superboy of this era, actually, if I'm thinking back to Young Justice 1 million. Oh, interesting. Well, sadly, um, this, is this the end of OMAC Superman? I don't know. We never see him again. <laughs> uh, and we do get just get more of this kind of um, headnet TV static and, and just, uh, you know, kind of endless communication, which seems to be the way of the future. Yeah, basically narrating Solaris's attack on, on the Earth as, as the tyrant sun devastates the landscape and makes some moose run away. Yes, and I've always liked that shot, actually. Yeah, of, me too. I feel sorry for the the, <laughs> the moose eye for the, the, the deers, and there's a little rabbit as well. I feel sorry for him, but... Um, it's a very effective panel of just a, a kind of apocalyptic death ray coming down from above. And, um, yeah, I would say kind of, you know, we've commented on it before, but just a, a, re- a recurring theme in some of Morrison's work, whenever they're depicting a future, they tend to imagine that it will just be an endless cycle of, well, it's basically Twitter, really, just kind <laughs> of a horrible, constant noise all the time. Uh, but the news reporting kind of, fills us in on the backstory a little bit um, while also just giving us some completely kind of irrelevant information because, yeah, it's just noisy all the time in the future. Yeah. Yeah, and then we, we turn the page and we get one final caption from the, the headnet saying, who can stop Solaris? As we find, let's face it, the six characters we've been wanting to spend real time with for a long while and haven't really been able to. It's the classic Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern and Aquaman. Yeah, hey everyone. Remember remember these folks? Remember uh, your main characters? We've not seen them. Uh, well, I guess the, the reader, if they were reading it in real time, has not seen them for three weeks. We've not seen them for... Well, uh, three months. Maybe? We saw Superman for that one terrible story last time. Last time, uh, but... I choose to believe that was an imposter. <laughs> um, but yeah, and they are chilling uh, in a bubble uh, around a meeting table, orbiting Jupiter. Yeah, it's a it's a hell of a visual. Yeah, this is uh, some kind of Justice Legion A's meeting table, is I think how it's referred to. So they, they talk about a man named Mitchell Shelley as the Legion's tactical advisor, so I'm guessing none of them have met Resurrection Man in the present yet. Oh, interesting point. Yes, indeed. Uh, and they're sort of going, okay, we've got files on every villain every iteration of the JLA has ever fought here, including Solaris. We've just got to take it down. And they seem to have formed a plan. Yes, um, 
and it's kind of i mean i guess it it's odd in a way because it, it it's kind of like an info dump it's kind of like a, a story so far um although i can't imagine anybody would be picking this up if they hadn't already followed the story a little bit yeah um but i guess it does serve the purpose of showing us that the league are aware of what's happening um because they've been ab- absent from the story for so long we really have no way of knowing what the situation is um but yeah, they're, they're apparently back on it, and uh, despite the incredible Ogs facing them, um, they're the Justice League, so it's it's business time, basically. Yeah, and they, they seem to have two sides to their plan. One is that Solaris is capable of studying and analysing, responding to threats at speeds millions of times beyond any computer in the 20th century, but the League have the Flash, Wally West, the fastest <laughs> man alive. The other thing the League has, which they realise Solaris has absolutely no memory of ever encountering at all, is Green Lantern. Yeah, which is wild. And and Nox, um, it's been quite a subtle plot point, really, that there isn't a Green Lantern in the future. Yeah. Because at this point in time, Kyle, of course, is the only Green Lantern. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think Kyle mentioned at one point, I think but way back in... DC One Million Part One. That um, half joking. I think he said like, "Well, what did I do wrong then?" Yeah. Like if I'm if I'm the last lantern and there's no lanterns in the future, I guess I screwed up in some way. Yeah, but I I, I absolutely love that the league's plan hinges on on our two favourites <laughs> on the Carl and Wally team, <laughs> which is great. And uh, and of course, you know, some things don't change, and Wally does warn Kyle to watch out for Uranus. I think he made that joke in issue one as well. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> they, it's been a while. It's been a long time for them as well. They, they've they forgotten the jokes they made. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Kyle uh, kind of um, blasts out into the asteroid belts. Um, they don't have Jean with them, but they do have access to a kind of um, artificial telepathy from the future, which is allowing them to communicate. And uh, meanwhile, back on Mars, um, kind of picking up from the end of the Resurrection Man tie-in, we see elderly Vandal Savage uh, teleporting the Night Fragment into Solaris. Yeah, this this is the end game uh, for the Vandal Savage Solaris plan as well, to kill the Prime Superman. And Savage is confident, he's like, well... My work's here is done, so I'm just going to teleport away. And hey, I killed killed the Resurrection Man as well. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, so PJ, I, um, you know, there goes your favorite uh, favorite plot point, the Night Fragment. Um, and um, yeah, um, Vandal Savage disappears by using a pair of teleport gauntlets, which he took from the Resurrection Man. So there you go. Uh, and uh, he says uh, he's off to Earth so he can uh, get a nice comfortable seat to watch the death of Superman Prime. So in case uh, we've glossed over it, uh, just to really emphasize the point, Solaris is ravaging Earth, but really his main target is the original Superman who has been inside the sun for thousands of years and he's going to shoot him with the night fragment when he emerges. So, in, in, you know, that's that's the ticking time bomb here. Yeah, 
Yeah, so looks like everything's going well for Solaris and Vandal Savage. It's not going well for the Resurrection Man, who we now cut to writhing in agony on the surface of Mars as a familiar figure sort of forms out of the sand on the ground. And it turns out Jean is still alive after a fashion. Uh, yeah, um, Jean has... Jean is, I guess, kind of just literally become one with Mars over time, like yeah. uh, his atoms, I suppose. So, yeah, Jean is alive. He's he's made of sand. Yeah, and he appears to, to Mitch and says, you know, we, we had a plan. Uh, the woman's name was Helena, and she told us how to win this battle. She died a long time ago. So that's our reference to this whole thing that's about to go down from the League's perspective being Huntress's idea. And um, from that bombshell, uh, we see the ongoing battle with Solaris. Um, and uh, so veterans of the Justice Legion of Super Zoomorphs, led by Prote One Million and Mastermind, join Justice Legion X and Marvel family members in the terrifying struggle against... And then the, the news thing gets kind of cut off. But we do get the wonderful visual of a super horse... Uh, wearing armour and a cape, uh, blasting its laser vision towards Solaris. And I approve of that wholeheartedly. Yep, likewise. And just below, uh, at the bottom of the panel, there's a, a, an aged Captain Marvel chucking a rock at Solaris, just for good measure. And maybe a... Well, I was going to say maybe a Flash, but I it's probably more likely to be a another um, Shazam-related hero. Um I mean, the the costume looks to me like uh, one of Rachel Summers' Phoenix outfits from X Men. So, but that's not going to be uh, right. Um, but uh, Jean hijacks the uh, the kind of headnet casks uh, with telepathy to um, address everyone, and he refers to himself as Jean Jean's Malika Malikandra. Please excuse my Martian pronunciation. Planet Four. So he he just he has just become Mars. He is Mars now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he basically says, um, "Hey, don't worry. Kind of. This is actually a temporal pincer movement, uh, and we have two JLA teams from different time periods working together. So all is not lost, basically." Yeah, and then we get some panels showing Kyle just flying through Solaris's plasma shields, commenting that he, Solaris probably thinks he's killed him. He has no idea what the ring is capable of, but he's also flying past the discarded bodies of superheroes who have, let's say, perished in this attack. They're dead. Oh, yeah, no, it's grim. It's grim. And um, I think you mentioned it earlier, PJ, but it's, it's nice to see some of the consequences of Solaris's actions. Yeah, this is one of the things you can do in a story like this where you're going to an alternate reality or a future or something like that that the reader isn't familiar with is you can just have a massive body count because you're not killing any character of consequence who has their own book. Yeah, and I it also I I like how Morrison gets how powerful the the ring is. Yes, like uh, you know, it, it it feels believable. I know, I know, in a way that kind of Kyle is kind of being used as a bit of a MacGuffin here, but 
it is believable that like the 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 last power ring would be so dangerous and 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 why Kyle is so much better at what he does than he thinks he is yeah yeah and you know this is another big hero moment for Kyle and I'm here for it um but he's not alone because of course uh we have uh Superman and the rest of the league who are are flying in a in a well it looks like some kind of incredibly advanced kind of fluid kind of spaceship sort of thing i think there's been a reference earlier on to wonder woman combining the justice legions round table with her invisible plane and that's what this is yes because uh, bless them um batman and aquaman are well frankly even flash not really their their natural environment flying around in space yeah um but uh yeah so basically kyle's job with backup from the league is to create a black hole inside Solaris, basically, yeah. with the ring. He's, he is struggling, though. So now we get the moment where our Superman, the main Superman, flies out of the League's craft and just flies into the battle, saying, I'm going to give you the time you need, Kyle. And just straight into it now, amongst everyone else battling with Solaris. But because he's Superman, you really feel this is the moment the tide turns. And also, I, we should say very quickly, because it is a bit of a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment. Um, Aquaman picks up Jean's telepathic communication, and Jean is telling them to retrieve DNA from inside Solaris. So this is apparently integral. There is a, there's a DNA sample inside Solaris... And they have to get it out. This is apparently all part of Jean's master plan. But because it's Jean, the League straight away trust him. And so Superman is just, we're changing the plan. We're doing this now. And while he's starting to have doubts, he said, I, I don't think Kyle can do this. You know, I've, I've run all the possibilities in the last nanosecond. <coughs> oh, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> That's getting good. Excellent news. Uh, yeah, Flash ran another million probabilities during that sneeze I just did. And, yeah, Wally's worried. So Batman just says, let me talk to Green Lantern. And Batman's basically like, hey, Kyle, you got this. And Kyle's like, hey, if Batman believes in me. And, again, this is, yeah, it's, it's, it's it means a lot, I think, that Batman is the one giving the pep talk here. Because it would be all too easy to just continually paint Batman as the cynical prick, basically. You know, that a lot of people see him as. Like, this kind of shows that he has a lot more heart. And I, again, sorry, I've just this is something I love about Morrison's characterization of them. It's very subtle, but Batman does care, I yes. think, a lot more than people give him credit for. And I think also, for somebody who lost his own father figure... At a very young point in his life, um, Batman is is very good at being a father figure to Kyle or Wally when they need it. And yeah, Batman saying that he believes in you is kind of what we all need to hear sometimes. I think definitely. But it's the idea is that Kyle is going to trigger a supernova within Solaris and then contain the blast using the ring. And Kyle says the ring's not powerful enough to do that. I, it can't do it, I can't do it and Batman just says, yes you can the ring does whatever you think trust me Green Lantern 
and think big. So I I think also having Batman call Kyle Green Lantern, because normally he doesn't, normally he just calls him Kyle. Mm. So I, I feel like having him actually refer to him as Green Lantern and saying, trust me, I'm Batman, I'm always right, that you know that. It, it's all part of, of Batman's little, not manipulation, but how he pumps Kyle up and gets Kyle to actually do this. Yeah, because you can see that Kyle is freaking out here. Mm. And... Um, but he is also able to retrieve the DNA sample. So, you know, put a, put a pin in that. It's going to be important. Um, and the Headnet reports are saying that, uh, oh, wow, looks like uh, Jean Jongs is still alive and he has a message of hope. And uh, also our chronoscopes have detected a massive ripple effect on the edge of deep time. So, hmm, there's a shockwave radiating out from somewhere in the distant past. And we cut back to the distant past, where a now decrepit, wizened Superman, one million, is still punching through the time barrier. Zauriel repeats. He does his, uh, did anyone feel that? We just lost four minutes on the clock. Time's getting badly bruised around here, because that's the loop he's stuck in. And then Superman manages to get him one more punch and makes it home. And he lands on the surface of the moon. And within seconds, the the aging is is reversed, and uh, he's he's restored to his uh, his normal self. I, I guess also kind of better than ever, because um, yeah, he's now under the super sun. So yeah, his powers are returning to their original base level. So good stuff. Yep. And then we get a classic up, up and away moment as he flies off the moon towards the battle with Solaris and I love that panel I think it's uh, it's just it's a, an iconic superman panel um so yeah so really it's all kind of converging now we're it's all coming together around Solaris and uh as Kyle erupts out of Solaris's eye he tells everyone that he's uh he's you know he hopes he's got the right DNA because otherwise someone else can take the blame um and he's induced the core collapse so uh, Solaris is like, well, that's not going to work. You know, uh, you tried that in the past. It didn't work. Uh, and instead, Kyle um, makes uh, a kind of Dennis the Menace style uh, rapscallion young boy with a slingshot who uh, smashes Solaris's eye uh, because, you know, Kyle is, is, a, is a prankster when he wants to be. Yeah, and... Solaris does note, oh, the weapon's vibrational structure is familiar, I recognise it, but then his systems collapse, and Kyle's like, yes, I saved the universe, as something green flies out of Solaris as he engages the night fragment. Yeah, and there's a lot to take in here, because as we turn the page, we get a shot of Solaris, um, I guess, kind of exploding, or his uh, corona sphere is blasting out as he he goes kind of supernova, and Kyle traps the whole thing in a giant safe, like a giant kind of cartoon safe, because uh, uh, he's trying to hold back a supernova with his brain. Yeah, unfortunately, the night fragment has made it out and is now flying towards the sun, and. Um, yeah, and, uh, and our Superman uh, narrowly avoids the night fragment. Um, 
as the league watch on. And um, they are they know because Jean has been filling him in off panel through telepathy that the night fragment is kryptonite and it is racing towards the sun. So, um, yeah, the Batman seems confident that it's all planned out and they're going to win. But uh, as Aquaman reminds him, he's not the one that needs convincing. It's Kyle. Yeah. And then we get this. I, I love this moment. Kyle is, he's really struggling to contain this explosion. He's, he's starting to bleed from his nose with the effort. He's, he's gripping with his, with his left wrist, he's gripping his right hand that the ring is on. And he says, he shouts that he needs help. He's holding the sun in his hands. As a blue gloved hand touches his shoulder and a thought bubble just goes incredible. And it's Superman 1 million. And for someone as powerful as Superman 1 million, who, don't forget, is is leaps and bounds above the Superman we're used to in terms of power levels. He is impressed by what Green Lantern is able to do. And that says a hell of a lot about Kyle. Yeah, um, really. And again, there'll be a little more on this in a bit, but like kind of cements the idea that we've talked about a little bit that Maybe Kyle is is the actual protagonist of the entire series. Yeah, because uh, Morrison clearly loves him, as as well he should, <laughs> as well they should. Sorry, because we all love we all love Kyle. Yes, and I also love these great moments where you'll have a character like Superman One Million say some incredibly grand and preposterous moment of superhero glorious stupidity, and Kyle just reacts in a very grounded way. So we have, uh, so we have Superman One Million saying, uh, "My force vision barrier can serve to cement your plasma bottle, Green Lantern." Blah 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 blah. It's up to your ear as Superman to race for Kryptonite Bullet and stop the assassination of his own future self. <laughs> to which Kyle just goes, "No sweat," which I love. Yep, yep, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So then we do cut to our Superman, who's racing the kryptonite fragment. He's trying to blast it with heat vision, but he's that's not working. And he's saying, he, how close can he get before the radiation gets him? He is gaining on it. He gets really close to it and then says, wait, there's no symptoms of, of kryptonite toxicity. This is, uh, wait, what's happening? And he manages to get a look at it and just says, it's not, as it strikes the sun. But PJ, you're absolutely certain it's kryptonite, aren't you? Hey, hey, I said the night fragment was kryptonite, and I stand by that. Um, well, well let's read on, PJ. I'm, you've, you've never been proved wrong before. Uh, and the headnet uh, picks up on, on the unfolding crisis that uh, the Earth, uh, the Sun, sorry, the Superman Prime's solar fortress has been uh, lethally contaminated by kryptonite so yes it's all gone to heck basically and um yeah the the league are watching and uh flash is 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 basically running the computer too fast uh, they're trying to work out what the hell is going on and aquaman looks on aghast as he says he killed superman Every, the the word on the street the headnet is saying that he's killed superman this is the end we failed yeah, and 
Kyle says, well, what happened? Didn't he stop it? The kryptonite's deadly to Superman. And Superman, one million, says Solaris threatened to poison him, to, to murder Superman Prime. But I can hear someone talking on Mars. And we cut back to Jean and Resurrection Man. And Resurrection Man says, well, ah, Starman vaporized the night fragment in the skies over Opal City 83,000 years ago. So that means this is... Did you set them up, Jean? Yes, and it's, it's, a, it's a real kind of gotcha moment because um, they've been playing four-dimensional chess. This is, they've you know, Huntress worked it out because there's a reason Batman wanted her on the team because she's very, very smart and... You realise that when you've got 853 centuries to play with, um, you have the time to set up master plans. So, yeah, Solaris thinks he assassinated Superman Prime. Instead, he unwittingly handed him the most powerful weapon in the universe. As the sun lights up with a massive Green Lantern symbol... Because Solaris just fired a Green Lantern ring into it. The Night Fragment was kryptonite, though, but Starman vaporised that. This was not the Night Fragment, so I wasn't wrong. No. Well, again, we could probably talk about it for ages, and maybe we will to some extent. (laughs) Um, At what point did that switcheroo happen? I don't know. Also, which Green Lantern ring is it? I mean, it has to be Kyle's, right? It looks like Kyle's. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. Time travel hurts my head sometimes. Well, and also, this is clearly a different universe, PJ, because this is prior to um, all the lanterns getting restored, uh, to the emotional spectrum, to the, the various various things that have been done to the lantern uh, kind of mythology since. So um, this has to, I, be- I choose to believe, be the only ring in existence, which is Kyle's. At this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. And a massive green hand has come out of the sun. Yeah, and it's coming towards Solaris, who is blackened and charred and and clearly not working right. And just to make clear that this isn't Kyle, Kyle is in the background of this shot as well, as the the hand comes from off-panel. And it just comes and squishes Solaris. Just squishes him. As a figure... Uh, wielding the ring uh, in silhouette, kind of shrouded in flames, goes my friends, it's good to see you all again as Superman Prime steps out of the sun and he's golden just head to toe, he is golden, he is crackling with energy and he's smiling and he just says, my friends it's good to see you, yeah because he's our he's our Superman, even though he spent thousands of years in the sun. Uh, this is this is Cal. This is Clark. Um, this is the ultimate fate of Superman in in Morrison's worldview. Basically, this is what Superman becomes. Um, literally, an, an avatar of the sun. He's basically a sun god at this point. Um, with a Green Lantern ring. With a Green Lantern ring. Um, but he's still he's he's still human at heart, and yeah, I don't know. It's for for a weird little comic with its flaws. Um, it's quite a powerful moment. Yeah. Oh, it really is. It really is. And that's sort of the 
the big powerful ending there. We everything that comes after this is epilogue. That's that's the denouement. Superman reappearing from the sun, and it's it's a lovely, it, it's brilliantly drawn as well. It looks beautiful. It's brilliant. And um, yeah, the the day is the day is saved, and uh, we get the the League and the Justice Legion kind of hooking up again. Presumably now they have access to working time machines, and we have Batman One Million. Remember him. Um, kind of apologising, not really apologising to our Batman, saying I had to send you into the future because Alfred's diary ab- survived into the future and it said it happened. So there we go. And our Batman accepts it without accepting it. He says lives were saved, but I'm trying hard to find my free will in all of this. And... I guess kind of present day Superman is like, um, yeah, I I don't need to stick around to see this. This is weird. I don't need to see my future self. Um, Let him know that I saw enough. Tell him I said hi, I guess. Uh, He'll know what I mean. (laughs) And then he says to Superman 1 million, you know, perhaps we'll meet again, Superman. And Superman 1 million says, I do what I can, but there's only one Superman. Um... Yeah, and and so we get uh, kind of more headnet stuff um, as apparently like uh, the whole universe is basically like turning to watch and rejoice at the return of Superman Prime, the greatest hero of any era. And we see, uh, you know, we see um, members of the Justice Legion. We see Kyle uh, just kind of looking on in kind of wonder. It's this kind of quasi... Almost like religious kind of experience for everyone, it would seem. It's um, it gets a bit transcendental. Yeah, and then the weirdness starts <laughs> because this this is all narrated in green caption boxes. So the first epilogue, we see um, Superman using uh, with the help of Lizixum from the uh, the Superman of the fifth dimension taking the DNA that Kyle brought out of Solaris and recreating Lois Lane. Yeah, because it was briefly... I, this is why I was kind of, you know, joking about you know, like the DNA sample being very important. I, it was briefly, briefly mentioned in a previous issue that when they made Solaris in the present day, they did put a DNA sample inside it. Yeah. But it's that weird, again, kind of cosmic four-dimensional chess thing where I guess it only makes sense in hindsight, like why why and how this happened. But uh, Lois Lane's alive again in the far future. Yep. And then just for good measure, our man gathers up time, uh, plays with it until he recreates Krypton under the yellow sun, including all its inhabitants. So now Superman is reunited with his biological mother and father. Yeah, and it is. It's yeah. I'll try to. I'll try not to get too meta about it because I'm sure we'll have things to say in a moment or two. But it is like the the universe is rewarding Superman. This is meant to be the end of yeah. his journey. Yeah, and so he's like the boy who suddenly got everything he ever wished for. He's living happily ever after, basically. Um, he's reunited with his wife after thousands of years. 
and his parents are back and um and and yeah all the all the kryptonians are now living under a yellow sun so they have superpowers like him and um yeah it's uh it's a nice moment actually yeah it's it's lovely but i think this next page is my favorite moment in this whole book because we cut back to the watchtower on the moon in the present day and Kyle has been narrating the previous two pages and he continues. He says, look, my, my memories are weird. I'm really tired. And he's talking to Jean and Jean said, says to him, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but I caught a thought that you had as you, uh, as it slipped from your mind. And Kyle says, this guy had circumnavigated the universe, wrestled evil gods, fought battles. We can't even imagine this being. And then you see Superman, our Superman, but of the far future, the golden sun god, with his wife, floating towards Krypton. And then a close-up of his face as he turns and winks at Kyle. And then Kyle just says, some things you can't put into words. And, oh, that's perfect. This is, for a for a wild, for a really just wild-ass book and a wild-ass issue, this comes out of nowhere... And is kind of perfect. Like, it is surprisingly emotional. And it is... And it just makes me all the more bitter that DC haven't done more with Kyle since. Because I don't understand how you couldn't have read this book, got this series, gotten the idea that Kyle was the main character, and gotten the idea that him and Superman had a very kind of, like, close relationship. I think he's a very important character, Kyle. Like, this is literally like the first and greatest superhero kind of sharing a moment of genuine friendship at the end of time, in a way. Yeah. With the new the new guy on the block, with the guy that people kind of hated because he wasn't... because he was new and different and... Yeah, again, as Kyle said, some things you can't put into words. Like it's a it's an incredibly powerful moment. I think it's it's some of Morrison's most beautiful writing. The 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 words he he gives Kyle in in the on this page and the responses from Jean as well. It's it's just so beautifully done. You can feel the emotions Kyle is feeling that he's sort of overwhelmed by this. Um, just this tiny moment he has with Superman. And it's it's so beautifully drawn as well. The art team here just superb, and it's it's a perfect page. And I think we will we will roll we will roll back around to this in a moment. But uh, I think we have to push on just to kind of bring bring the story to an end. But uh, we it is coming to an end, and and so this is kind of an epilogue of sorts. And we cut back to. The regular Justice League, our Justice League, back on the Watchtower in the present day, and uh, we have yet another great Superman moment because we have present-day Superman saying, "We worked as a team across 830 centuries, and whether in the far future, here on the Watchtower, or in our ongoing efforts to alleviate the tragedy in Monte in Montevideo, all of you have my admiration and amazement." Duty rosters on the fridge door. Meeting adjourned. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's classic Superman. 
And you've yeah, you've got the whole league except Orion. He's not there. Uh, he's he's been elsewhere this whole time. Everyone else is sat around the the table in the watchtower though, and just yeah. And then Wally and Kyle have a moment together where they talk about how uh, Wonder Woman has described what Kyle did with the supernova with Solaris as officially a feat. <laughs> and Kyle jokes about saying, "Yay, I made it to the status of feat." Uh, what's next? Miracles. Hmm. And um, yeah, the league kind of you know go about their separate ways, and Superman and Batman have a little conversation, and again a rare moment of humour from Batman in a way, or levity, um, which I think he would only really share with Superman. I think yes. this kind of shows the comfort the two of them feel around each other. Yeah, Superman says, look, we can't always agree with their methods, but come on, Batman, in the end, your spirit went where it was needed most. And Batman just says, my body aches and I'm hungry. That's all I'm sure of, but I'll call this a learning experience if you do. And I think he has a very faint smile on his face. He definitely does. And we have... Um, then we we see Big Barda confronting Zariel in private and says, We know why you've come here, Angel. To which Zariel says, Then perhaps the time for secrecy is over. Will you tell them, or should I? Now, this is such a weird moment to have in this book, and I don't know how I feel about it. This is obviously set up for what's coming in the pages of JLA and you've seen there's an indication here that Plastic Man's eavesdropping as well because he's there's a vending machine in his <laughs> colours just there in 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 shot. But this is like that Ultramarines moment from earlier in the uh, in the series where yeah okay it's it's a nice little hook for JLA and maybe it'll get people going, oh I'd better read JLA to find out what's going on here. But if you were reading JLA and didn't read this series, it, it's I don't know. I don't know how I feel about these things being put in, in the event book. Yeah, particularly when, um, and again, spoilers, everybody, but the fact that Plastic Man eavesdrops on this conversation, it's never picked up. No. It doesn't go anywhere. Maybe that's not Plastic Man and he's just painted certain things in the watchtower to make people <laughs> think he's there. That would actually be a brilliant... Yeah, that would be an amazing <laughs> strategy. Um, and then we get uh, Jean... And Superman having a little conversation. And um, yeah, it's a nice little poignant, poignant moment. Uh, Superman points out that, you know, we won, but really the battle is still ahead of us because it will happen in the future. Um, I don't like to think about living forever. And Jong says it becomes natural in time. But then he does say, and I guess kind of tying into that previous strange scene... He he ends on a very kind of cryptic, kind of cliffhangery note where he basically just says, I fear the Justice League's greatest challenge lies just ahead. It's a real kind of like tuning next week, kids, sort of moment. But then Superman has a very Superman response where he just says, Well, doesn't it always, John? There's challenges around every corner. And um Yeah, we get a, another scene where Huntress and Batman are running across the streets of Gotham. And Huntress uh, just very kind of casually points out that, yeah, I just I just pointed out the obvious that, you know, we had 800 and we had 83,000 years to lay a trap. So, um, yeah, we just had to bury like a time capsule to ourselves in the futures. It was it was easy, really. Yeah, I like that she references that she got the idea from from 
the kids in her school had been burying a time capsule and it uh, it's just a nice um a nice way of pointing towards her civilian identity and showing where these ideas can come from and yeah i, I like that it's sort of the simplest most, most innocent of acts is is what gave huntress her idea and again stuff that kind of is is shown is demonstrated without need, needing to be expressly said you know she says um you know, you never did tell me why you nominated me for JLA membership. And Bowing says, I disapprove of your, of your methods. I've also, in the past, found you to be pedantic, inflexible, brutal, and lacking finesse. But I've enjoyed watching you change. And that's kind of as, as close to glowing praise as you will get from Batman. Yeah, but of course Huntress just says, well, what's that supposed to mean? And never gets a response. And again, kind of like with Kyle... Just you know, we've talked about these moments a few times, like you know, with Kyle, with Steel, with Huntress, like how they prove their worth to the Justice League, like so many times in this series, through these beautiful little moments from Morrison, and um, I do think it's a shame that that wasn't um, rewarded. Really, you know, that Steel and Huntress, for example, haven't been long-lasting members of the league. Well, Huntress, we sort of get an explanation for as the series goes on um i'm not going to spoil anything but yeah there's 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 reasons why huntress didn't become a long-standing member of the league uh, but yeah definitely with steel he should have been around more um but uh, we get another member of the bat family we get oracle kind of uh in the watch in in her personal watchtower the clock tower uh kind of saying like um six o'clock all's well good morning world and kind of signing off yeah it's just a nice little you know the things are good now the the crisis is over we can relax briefly and but there's another epilogue pj yes and vandal savage hey it's elderly vandal savage he's back so he's teleported in to his final destination. He's he's on Earth to watch the culmination of his glorious plan. And then he's like, wait, wait, this isn't right. Where am I? He says, what what planet is this? And his, his gauntlet says, uh, you're on Earth uh, in 1998 in Montevideo. And he says, wait, 1998, Montevideo. And then he looks up as a rocket red flies towards him. And... Uh, we we get uh, um, the little voice from his time gauntlet says, message from Gabriel Walker, congratulations, you have been conned by Kronos. Checkmate. And blinking you miss it, but you can see behind Vandal Savage in the first panel uh, a figure wearing green and black lycra. Yep. This is, Kro- this is Kronos. He teleports out uh, and we can also infer that the gauntlets, the teleporting gauntlets that Savage has used, are the ones that Kronos stole from John Fox, the Flash of the Future, which is why he couldn't uh, use them to go back to the future. Um, so again, stuff that we have not seen in the pages of this curated run of DC One Million. So again, another blinking you miss it kind of moment, but. Um, yeah, that's been going on behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, but the book just ends with with the captions. The sky seems to catch fire as if struck by a flint. 
Vandal Savage, the last caveman, experiences an overwhelming sense of deja vu. And then just a white panel with the caption, and again, beautiful writing from Morrison. In the 853rd century, Mitch Shelley, the resurrection man, dies with a smile on his face. The end. The end! Wow. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. So look, uh, I've been critical of DC 1 million as we've gone through. I will admit that it's had some ups and downs. But that last issue, that is a stunner. That is a brilliant, brilliant comic. It is wild how powerful and f- f- fitting that ending for Superman is. Yeah. It, it kind of feels... It does kind of feel like the last Superman story, and yet it's somehow sandwiched in the middle of this bizarre crossover event. In the last issue of this bizarre crossover event, you just get this oddly perfect moment. Like, um, I'm getting increasingly sappy as I get older, and that genuinely made me feel a little emotional, kind of reading through it, like... The relationship, you know, with the moment between Superman and Kyle, you know, even even just Lois Lane being brought back in like a, a an odd little moment, like it's yeah. I how does this happen? I don't understand. Like how, how does how does this get sandwiched in here? It's it's bizarre to me. I yeah, it's weird, isn't it? That that Superman Kyle moment is it it genuinely makes me slightly emotional it i re- read this comic last night uh, before i went to sleep and i was like that's that's one of my favorite things it just made i genuinely got emotional reading it and i thought i i love this i i'm and i'm feeling what kyle's feeling i'm feeling safe because superman recognizes me he recognizes who I am and what I've done, and he's telling me things are fine and everything's okay. And because he's Superman, I'm, I believe him. And mm. just I've had this moment with him, and and being with Kyle for that, yeah, it's this book has made all the rest of DC One Million, even the Drek, worth it. It is, yeah, it's insane. And again, like, yeah, where to start with this? It's weird. It is an absolutely beautiful moment, and it is so weird to me that it it, it happens here, mm. like in a way, because what we're seeing is the final point in a character history. Uh, you know the the lifespan of Superman, as as dictated by Morrison. Like this is, you can draw a line from All Star Superman to this, you know, through every kind of private little story that Morrison's run over the years. And 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 again, to drive that home again, Superman Prime turns up in All-Star Superman. Yeah. Um, in issue six, I want to say, uh, Death in Smallville, which is a very, very emotional story in itself about, you know, the death of Pa Kent. And... That's kind of what happens next after this story, in a way. And it, it it's it's just wild to me. Again, I, I've talked about it before, but just the 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 critical and commercial impact that those two series made is so different. Like All Star Superman 
is is widely regarded to be one of the best, if not the best Superman story ever made. DC 1 million, I would say, is not really fondly remembered by pretty much anyone. And it's weird to me that the two of them are so important to Morrison's personal Superman mythology. It's insane to me. I feel like DC 1 million is, is largely looked at as a curio. People know about it and haven't necessarily read it, even if they've read the Morrison JLA run. No one would say it was their favourite. But yeah, All-Star Superman is is often cited as one of the greatest Superman stories of all time. I'm hesitant to say the, to give it the definitive article, but it's definitely up there as, as one of them. Um, but yeah, so the fact that they are so connected is is astonishing but the fact that also even though they're so connected you don't need to have read one to understand what's happening in the other is mm. is is you know morrison is very good at what they do well i'm gonna get very pretentious here pj uh it's not like me i know but <laughs> it could almost be said that uh gmos uh was playing their own game of kind of four-dimensional chess here they somehow wrote an ending to a story Six years ahead. Well, actually, oh god, that's depressing, isn't it? There's only like All Star Superman came out in two thousand and four. Yeah, did it? Yeah, no, yeah, possibly two thousand and four. That's insane. So it's only like a six year gap between the two things. But they wrote the end before they wrote the beginning, because the the end of All Star Superman spoilers everybody. Of course, we see Superman not quite the same continuity Superman from this page from the pages of this book. Um, going into the sun, like it, it's uh, Superman sacrifices himself to keep the sun alight. Yeah, it's a slightly different continuity, but that's where we get that famous line, like um, where um, you know, uh, Clark is Cal, Superman is dying, and has a vision of his father of um, Jor El. Who who and it gives us the famous kind of line about you know you've given them you've given humanity an ideal to strive towards you know they'll stumble and fall but in time they'll join you in the sun like in time you will no longer be alone and it's and and it's a very that's a very emotional moment in itself and then in here we see the reward for that character here we see the end of that character's journey where. They are finally no longer alone. Like it took thousands of years, but this is almost Morrison saying like thank you to Superman for mm. being this incredibly powerful idea, for being what Morrison needed at a point in their life. And you know, kind of why why we all need Superman, why Superman is such a powerful ideal that kind of lives on. And yeah, Morrison gives a character like this incredible send-off in the final issue of this bizarre crossover. It's 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 beautiful and weird and really just I, I I'm I'm running out of ways of saying odd. It's really odd. I think part of the oddness as well is how up and down we've been on DC One Million as a whole, even within individual issues. And I I would say the first three issues of DC One Million and JLA One Million are not Morrison's strongest writing. Then they're, they're not their best work. Um, they're not bad. There's a lot of good fun stuff in there, but each one of them has sort of a down, you know, something you can criticise it for quite easily as well. And then obviously the other issues in the in the trade as well. Some of them are just downright terrible. 
Um, Resurrection Man one, I still hold that up. I think that was great. But this issue is on another level to anything else in this book. And that's crazy to me how how Morrison's writing can be of such a different quality within the space of one story. If I... If I had a theory, I would say that they tried to do too much. Yes, I would agree with that. I think what uh, I said last time out, the 12-issue series, that's what they needed. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of feel that, like, given what we've learned and how Morrison kind of individually plotted every issue, every tie-in issue, with the exception of Hitman, because Garth Ennis was just given free reign to be Garth Ennis. Yeah. Um... It's an it's an insane amount of work. Uh, it would be uh, nearly impossible for a mere mortal. Uh, somehow, of course, Morrison <laughs> Morrison was cut from a, a different cloth and was able to take it on, rightly or wrongly. And I think almost had too many ideas. And I think if there had been a bit of a tighter editorial control maybe an, a, a different editor or, so, or or someone in the higher up could have said I think you need to rein it in a little bit I'd rather you focus more on the ideas that shine rather than trying to fit in a hundred a hundred different ideas mm. because you can see when Morrison is having fun yes y- you know the moments we've talked about that have really kind of elevated the series uh, sorry, the just one million. We it's like a light switch. You go, oh, Morrison's enjoying themselves. Like this is clearly where their passions lie, and you can tell that. Like you know, this issue in particular, we've criticised some of the overarching plot points of one million, hmm. and this final issue, like some bits, just kind of race by. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. we've suddenly we've suddenly got the league back, and now they're gonna blow up Solaris with a supernova. Oh, there's a night fragment. Oh, there's like DNA. Now Vandal Savage is teleporting out. That is just kind of just blinking, you miss it. Just race through that to get to the stuff that matters, which is and and then we all go, ah, Lancelot. Morrison's doing well. You know, this is what this yeah. is what Morrison loves. So yeah, the pacing is 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 absolutely wild. Um but it's it's Again, it's like the mo- the good moments are so good. It's it's almost worth it. Yeah, I agree. As, as you said, there is stuff you can criticize in this issue. I think the DNA stuff is not really seen. You've just got the odd speech bubble. Oh, there's DNA. Oh, I've got it. And that's that's all that's that's done there. Um, I feel like the space given to things that are setting up stuff to come in JLA again could have been better used doing something else and leave those bits for the actual JLA book, perhaps. But yeah, the when you get to the main emotional beat of this story, that is Superman's reward. That's what DC One Million is about. You know, you you can't knock that. That is those few pages towards the end are so well done. Like that, I would those few pages. The issue I wouldn't say is a favorite of mine. I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. But I think Morrison has done a lot better in terms of one-off comics in, in one comic but those few pages i hold up amongst some of the best pages they've ever written 
I think it's interesting what you're saying, PJ, about you know you you would have liked to have seen DC One Million as a as a smaller project, uh, maybe and kind of like a with a tighter focus, like maybe uh, you mentioned like potentially like a twelve issue miniseries or something. Yeah, I think if we had focused purely on the adventures of the League and the Justice Legion, uh, really kind of rein it in. Just focus on their plot lines. We could have, you know, the present day threat and the future threat. And let's see that all in the pages of one book. Um, maybe ditch some of the ideas. You know, we don't need to get the entire potted history of Superman across, you know, kind of 83 centuries. Um, to have the tie-ins, but make them more kind of irrelevant in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would like to have seen more of the good kind of stuff i would have liked to have seen more of those characters and i would have liked to have seen you know i think if 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 i could you know far be it for me to try and improve on that great scene but i would like it it would be nicer if it had been longer yeah you know because um morrison had to morrison picks and it packs an incredible amount of content into a short space because there's all the other plot stuff to get through you know and i think like yeah, if it had had a bit more space and didn't have to be wrapped up in the last issue, maybe it would have been even better. You know, you could have if if you do it like that way over a a, a multi part focused series, you could thread Resurrection Man in a bit more because his part of it is so key, mm. but he only comes in in his own issue and is briefly then in issue four as well. That's all we see of him. I love that Resurrection Man issue. As I say, I think it's one of the high points of the book for me, but it would be nice to sort of have him threaded through as a member of the Justice Legion and, and then at some point going, oh, wait, I've got to go do this bit now and goes off to his mission then. But yeah, lots of things that I think a different format could have really helped with the story and i think then it would maybe be looked back on as as a classic and stand up there with all-star superman but i don't know maybe morrison learned lessons from this that they then were able to put through into all-star superman and that's why that book takes that format well indeed and um you know i do i do feel that this was kind of like a trial run in a way like this was you know um I'm I'm putting thoughts in their in their head. You know, they're not here to, you know, just confirm or deny it, but like maybe Morrison was a little kind of dissatisfied with some of these ideas and wanted to kind of do do them justice. You know, the Bizarro plague is referenced here. Mm. Solaris again. Um the the ultimate fate of uh, of um of Superman, the Superman squad, which is mentioned briefly and pops up again in All Star Superman, like it's it's incredible in a way, like it, it, how how many thematic links there are between the two, and I guess maybe we should, you know, to in maybe the defence of DC One Million, you and I are reading a curated experience. We're we're, we're reading the abridged version of yeah. the ultimate experience because, you know, we're reading the stories which an editorial team saw fit saw fit to collect as an early graphic novel and there is an omnibus version out there which has much more content so i don't know maybe if you if you read everything it would feel a bit more enriching i don't know potentially um we we have no way of knowing unless we actually do that and i don't know if i can face that to be honest (laughs) no no i think i think um i don't think the world is ready for a a 48 part 
JLA Cask mini series on that, but no. uh, I'm I'm happy to move on at least, and um, you know, take the good with the bad. And you know, there has been some bad, to be honest. But w- when it's good, it's really good. Like it, it's yeah, it, little moments like that. It's the Morrison magic, and it, it just kind of re- reminds you why we'd want to do a podcast about their yes. work because. Oh, my life yeah it's incredible yeah with let's face it an incredibly satisfying ending that as i said it does make almost the rest of reading the rest of that book worth it so you know at the end of the day i can't complain about having read that the and of course now it's over pj um yeah we're at this kind of turning point now where we're entering the final phase of of the JLA series, really, and and we have some incredible highlights still to come, the ones that we're both very excited about. Yeah, so we go back to the main JLA book next up as we start the Justice for All trade, but I don't know if this is just in my head or, or what have you, but I do feel like there's a very strong dividing point between Strength in Numbers and Justice for All, and maybe that is DC 1 million, but it does... The book feels slightly different from this mm. point on to me and i couldn't quite tell you why or what that is but justice for all and world war 3 are very slightly separate from the first four volumes for five volumes in in my head and yeah as i say that might just be me and and my weird brain but um but yeah i'm very excited though because certainly justice for all has some absolutely amazing stories in it i don't think there's a dud in that book well, we've talked about it before, but like our our incomplete theory of the different the different eras of mm. JLA, <laughs> of of the Morrison run on JLA, like yeah, because there there are several points in the series where it feel it feels like there's been a a big shift in I don't I don't I don't know what it is I don't know if it's Morrison's approach to the characters if it's their approach to storytelling but yeah like um the 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 series when it was new world order <laughs> so long ago i mean yeah but it's like that feels like such a different book to, even to american dreams you know mm. and then of course rock of ages takes it in a whole new direction uh, strength in numbers feels a little different again but you're right like i very 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 much enjoyed justice for all it was one of my favorite volumes to go back to when i was younger um but yeah, it, it 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 feels very different. I feel maybe I'll be proven wrong. I feel we might we maybe get slightly fewer of the nice personal interpersonal moments in the next book. It becomes a bit more kind of focused on the spectacle. Uh, the first story I think is all spectacle, mm. but then I, I do remember there one of the stories in there is um, Crisis Times Five which is a JLA-JSA team-up story. And I, I I do remember there being some really nice interpersonal moments between team members in that four-part story. We do get, and rightly, I'm just thinking ahead because I'm excited, but we do get some good Kyle moments as well. Yes. Which I, I always approve of. And also we get some kind of some guest issues. Yeah, so we get an issue, what I remember being an excellent fill-in issue by Mark Miller, uh, and then Mark Wade comes back for a couple of issues as well. 
um, which I also remember really enjoying. And certainly one of those is very much a, about the interpersonal relationships between the League members. Yeah, and I know that I was a little critical of Wade's uh, kind of Adam Strange stories mm. uh, and, and the uh, Dueling September case. However... I very much enjoy Mark Wake's uh, two guest issues in the upcoming book. And I think uh, Mark Miller's contribution may be the best thing he's ever written. Um, yeah. Yeah, it might be. It's up there. <laughs> that or one of his Sonic <laughs> the Comic stories. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know... <laughs> Let, let, yeah, let's get real for a minute. Of course, it's not in the comic. <laughs> but yeah, it's nice to see a, a a Mark Miller story which isn't plagued by cynicism, which I which I quite like. Yes. Um, yeah, and it feels of a piece with the rest of the Morrison Wade JLA run. So that which these days does feel like a complete surprise to be saying about Mark Miller. But all in all, there's a lot to look forward to. Basically, yes, and I am very excited. So, so PJ, have we have we um, have we said everything we need to say about DC One Million? Um, yeah, I think maybe we have. I think it's it's been a long road. Uh, it's been a bumpy road, but you know, we ended up at a place that was beautiful. So, I'm happy with that journey. Yeah, it's. It has felt like a bit of a slog at times, but I think it's criticism is a very funny thing. Mm. You know, we we tend to hold the things we love to a higher standard, you know, and maybe we've been a little hard on one DC one million at times, but I would still rather reread DC one million than I think ninety percent of the books on the shelves right now. Um. Yeah, it's we wouldn't we wouldn't spend the time talking about a bad book, if that makes sense. Like, even when we're being a little critical, it's only because there's something good here. We we really just wouldn't even spend the time talking about a book that was wasn't up to standard, really. So it all comes from a place of love. It does. It does deep down and. Yeah, it's it's a big adventurous mess, but I'm glad somebody tried to do it. Yes, yeah. But hey, um, if we really have exhausted DC One Million, I guess we should say a massive thank you to everyone who stuck with us through it. Uh, it's been nine episodes. It Good has lord! Been, it, it has been nine episodes. It has been what does it say? August, September, October. Twenty November. weeks. Uh, yep. Yep, 20 weeks because we missed an episode. It's been yep. four months. Um, Christmas has begun. Kind yeah. of. <laughs> <laughs> it was midsummer when we started. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to move on and get into the next phase of JLA. Yeah. Oh, so excited. But also sad because we're getting towards the end. But, you know, there's there's lots of good stuff to come first. Well, if... PJ, we really have reached reached the uh, the emotional end. Uh, I guess I should say a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork, and uh, another massive thank you to Elliot Red for composing and performing our fabulous theme tune, Justice. 
And uh, PJ, is uh, you know, is there anything you'd like to shout about? Anything you'd like to draw attention to? Uh, I'm going to do one of my occasional mentions of my other podcast, The Measure of a Fan, in which myself, the aforementioned Elliot Red, and the comedian Matt Troy watch Star Trek in chronological order. We are currently on season two of Enterprise. Elliot's watching it all for the first time. I'm only bringing it up because as we record today, Wednesday the 1st of December, we dropped uh, a new episode. Um, it's one of the silliest things I've ever recorded, that episode. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly proud of it. It's so stupid. Please go and listen to it. Uh, it's, it's, we tried to talk about an episode of Enterprise called The Seventh, and uh, a lot of the conversation turns to the terrible film Manos, The Hands of Fate. And yeah, I'm, I'm weirdly, stupidly proud of my stupid little podcast. As well, you should be, PJ. And uh, didn't you didn't you all have the luxury of recording in person? We did, yes. Uh, this weekend just gone, uh, Elliot and Matt came over to my house and we recorded two episodes in person that will be then our, our next two episodes to be released as we record today. Were you aware, PJ, that um, my friend Sam, who goes by, uh, who is a game developer called Freaks on Games, who is the uh, creative force behind Spectacular Sparky, kind of gained uh, early fame in his career when he made a video game for Manos for Hangs of Fate. You're joking. <laughs> no, this is true. This oh. is all real. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. I need to get him on my Star Trek show to talk to him about this. <laughs> I think I know he would absolutely love that. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to make that happen. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, it's weird. I, when, when you were talking about Manos Hangs of Fate, I was like, why is it that all these people in my life are talking about Manos Hangs of Fate? Maybe I should actually see it at some no, point in my life. Really don't. Unless you're watching it through the lens of Mystery Science Theatre 3000, don't do it to yourself, John. Trust me. Uh, okay. I, you can be my canary down the mine. <laughs> um, and I guess if, if, if I had anything to shout about, kind of podcast related, um, we are fast approaching our 100th episode of oh, a, sh a show called Hate, wow. which is which is wild. I can't, I can't believe... Um, I mean, frankly, if we if we stuck to the original publishing schedule, we'd be way over a hundred by now. Uh, but we took a massive kind of break in somewhere in the middle while we all kind of bought and renovated houses and um, <laughs> got married and stuff. So, but yeah, incredibly, episode ninety eight has just come out. So that means that episode one hundred will be coming out kind of right slap bang on Christmas time, and we're trying to work out what the hell we're going to do for it, by which I mean, no, of course, we definitely have a plan. We've had a plan for ages, <laughs> and we're not just winging it. Wow, episode 100. That's that's impressive. That's when it really... That, that's when it's really going to kick off, PJ. That's when it's going to get like, good. That Yes, yeah. I mean, finally. God knows people have been waiting. Because I've been binging of, it lately, and yeah, I was hoping it would at some point. But, Oh, yeah, no, it's a long, torturous ride. Up until about episode 88, then it starts getting tolerable. Okay, I'll look forward uh, to that. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, God, yeah. No, it's going to be wild, actually. Um, so, yeah, look at us. We're all growing up. And then, of course, you, you hit episode 100 of any podcast, and it's like getting your driver's license. You know, now now you're free to, to make comedy. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, PJ, um, uh if if is there anything else you'd like to add i know it's been a long episode uh no oh uh no yes i would hey folks be nice to each other let's all just be nice let's do that
There we go. Message of hope. Yeah, uh, message of hope from a notoriously uh, surly and angry and aggressive man. Yes. PJ Montgomery. Damn right. PJ, would you like to see us off in your own loving, caring, joking aside, your own awesome fashion? John has a drinking problem. It's true.